everyone, it's Mosh Wanunu. I want to thank you for joining me for this Mo News conversation. I'm currently traveling, and in place of the daily newscast, we're bringing you some new interviews and deep dives through the end of this week. Today's conversation takes us inside Ukraine with award-winning international war correspondent Clarissa Ward. She's currently the chief international correspondent for CNN. I had the opportunity to work alongside Clarissa during our time at Fox News and CBS News, and her courage and storytelling is really, really remarkable. She risks her life regularly to bring us the stories from the front lines in places like Ukraine, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and really all over the world. Most recently, she's been in and out of Ukraine during the six-month, now going on seven-month war, and has done some really incredible reporting from the front lines underground, above ground, uh, behind enemy lines, telling the story of the human toll of this war. I had the opportunity to speak with Clarissa earlier this summer during one of her tours from Ukraine. She was currently in Ukraine at the time. We discuss everything from the geopolitics, what's inside Putin's brain, what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, and her role as a foreign correspondent, how she stays safe, how she tells her stories, and she compares what's going on in Ukraine to other conflicts she's covered. One of the topics we get into in this episode is all about how journalists wear these dual hats as both reporters and humans documenting a conflict where people need their help. In this case, earlier this spring, she told the story of an 86-year-old woman named Lydia that she came across a Ukrainian woman who was stuck and was desperate for help. And then uh, there were follow-on stories and follow-on stories. And eventually, uh, Lydia was saved from the situation and the predicament she was in. And effectively, Carissa tells the story of how she discovered the story, the story of Lydia. So I've linked in the show notes to the pieces that Clarissa did. So as you listen to that story, you have a little bit of background. Before we start, a reminder to follow or subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Every single review makes a difference and helps us grow the podcast. With that, my conversation from earlier this summer with Clarissa Ward. So I'm so pleased to have Clarissa Ward joining me. She's an incredible award-winning correspondent, uh, CNN, Fox, ABC, CBS, back to CNN. Um, no matter where um, you know a conflict erupts in the world, it seems that um, she is there bringing us the stories of not only what the government is saying, but what the civilians are experiencing. I was very lucky to call her both a colleague at, at Fox and um, especially my time at CBS. And uh, Clarissa, I'm, I'm so uh, grateful for you uh, taking a moment to speak with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's so nice to chat. What's the reasoning behind Ukraine's surprise performance here uh, that went against, you know, I was talking to um, former CIA director Mike Morell like a couple days before the war started. And he's like, and he had the same assessment. You know, it's probably Kiev's lost in three days. Um, what, what do you think it explains when you talk to Ukrainian government officials and, and from what you've witnessed on the ground? Uh, their performance so far? I think there's a number of factors. I think, first of all, maybe people had underestimated the sense of solidarity and the courage and tenacity of Ukrainian forces and their ability to launch, you know, really staggering counteroffenses and to defend uh, against a military that on paper is superior in terms of the amount of weapons and the amount of manpower. I also think nobody quite knew how President Zelensky would step into the moment. He had previously been an actor and a comedian and he very quickly asserted himself as this sort of Churchillian wartime figure who was very adept at communicating with his people and keeping them together and galvanizing support. 
and really, I think, contributing to this sense among almost all of the Ukrainian people that I have come across of deep commitment and solidarity to see this through to the end. And then the third piece that I would also mention that is significant is that there has been a very robust and unified response from NATO allies and from the US in terms of getting the weaponry um, or at least some of the weaponry that the Ukrainians need and would like and also punishing Russia in the form of sanctions um, for this illegal and frankly completely unnecessary war. And so all of those factors I think have contributed to a a, a, a performance by Ukrainian forces that I don't think anyone could have predicted. Is there a sense that they can continue to maintain this? I think it's very challenging for them. I think that a lot will depend on weaponry and ammunition. There's a very real fear now that, you know, then the Ukrainians are constantly talking about this, they could run out of ammunition at any moment. They're, they're going through a huge amount uh, of weapons because they're fighting very hard and it is more difficult to resupply them in the East than it was in Kiev, which is obviously much closer to NATO countries that, that, that would be helping them out with those weapons. So it is, it is not impossible for this war to grind on as a sort of war of attrition. Um, ultimately, no one benefits from that, um, but it is also hard to see how either side can really score a decisive victory here. Now that said, there is a new Russian general who's at the helm, um, Alexander Dvornikov, known as the butcher of Syria, who is known for his um, indiscriminate targeting of civilian infrastructure. And if we see the sort of tactics that were implemented in Mariupol being used on a broader scale, it is possible that that could um, force Ukraine into a position where it has to make concessions, let's say, earlier. On the other side, it is also possible, I mean, we're looking now this whole dynamic in the East whereby Russia has forces trying to move down from the north, up from the south, in from the east. The idea is to try to encircle Ukrainian forces um, and then bombard them. But already the Ukrainians have responded by launching a series of offensives, trying to cut off Russian supply lines. Um, the fact that the airspace is still contested at this stage, when in the early days we were basically saying that like, well, I mean, Ukraine doesn't have much of an air force. And the concern initially in the early stages of the war from NATO countries is like, oh my God, are they headed our way next? And having watched this performance in Ukraine, I guess one piece of solace they might have is like, well, they, you know, we, we have less to worry about as far as their conventional uh, capabilities. A hundred percent. And I think also that's been a surprise to the Russian side. You, you know, when you hear these sort of intercepted conversations that we've been able to get a hold of between Russian soldiers and people at home and 
their impression going into this, a lot of them, was that this was a special operation that was going to take a few days, that they were going to be welcomed with open arms by Ukrainian people saying, please save us from these terrible Nazis, and that the whole thing was going to look a lot more like Crimea, for example, which was annexed without a shot fired. And what they have found is that the people are going up to them and shouting shame on you, even as bombs are raining down on them. And I don't think they had bargained for that level of resistance or courage. You covered the war in Syria. Um, I'm not sure if you had interactions or witnessed what that Russian general did uh, specifically in Syria, but can you explain what what that means when you say, you know, his experience in Syria and bringing that to Ukraine? What, What could that translate into? Well, look, there are some potential similarities and some big differences. So Russia's strategy under Dvornikov in Syria, and I did experience it myself, was basically all about hitting hard from the skies, having a much lighter footprint on the ground in terms of ground forces, and letting the Syrian army and various proxies like Hezbollah do the sort of mopping up operation. From the skies, the objective was very strongly about targeting civilians and hospitals and schools. When I was there in 2016, I saw them blow up a fruit market. Um, And the idea of doing that as, as cynical and as heartless and as frankly illegal as it is, is that you demoralize a population and you bring them to their knees and you deliver a very stern message, which is you have a choice between Assad and death. Basically, there is no middle way for you. There is no normal life. There is Assad or death. Um, So that can be very compelling on the battlefield because it is so horrifying and and so petrifying that people do tend to uh, surrender ultimately. The difference is here in Ukraine, well, first of all, the Russians don't have complete control of the skies yet. Secondly, they are relying heavily on ground forces. Thirdly, the Ukrainian army is not, it's, it's, you know, it's an incredibly accomplished, brave fighting force with sophisticated weaponry. The Syrian rebels were for the most part, just fighting with light weapons. So the, 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 the context is not the same, but it's possible that some of the strategies will be the same. And we've heard so many people talking about Grozny and Aleppo. For the most part, we haven't seen anything on that scale yet in Ukraine, with the very possible exception of Mariupol. The issue in Mariupol is journalists can't get in there unless they go in through the Russian side. And obviously, the Russians um, are not going to allow journalists to see the full scale of atrocities there. But when I was there just before the war, I was working with a driver called Andre. We spoke to Andre the other day. He said that both of his parents had been killed in their homes in Mariupol. He has no way to go in and to bury them. And that's just a tiny glimpse uh, onto a crisis that we know is, is, is much, much worse than that. We've seen theaters where people were taking shelter bombed. We've seen a maternity hospital where women were giving birth bombed. And we have heard from Ukrainian officials that they estimate thousands of civilians are dead, but we don't 
have any way of knowing what the exact number is. And, and what's terrible, honestly, is that we might never know. Yeah, I, I, I was struck by uh, President Zelensky. He won't give Putin the Donbass or doesn't plan to at least. And they, the country can fight for 10 more years. Um, what's, what's your assessment of, well, what, A, how does this end given what you know, he is currently saying? And B, what does Ukraine look like after that? I mean, in terms of what Ukraine looks like, it's, it's horrifying to even imagine. The thing I would say that people sometimes forget because it, it was not a war that was being as actively covered in recent years is that particularly in the Donbass region, they have been fighting Russian-backed separatists for eight years. So there is a sense there that people are used to war in a way that they certainly were not in Kyiv for example, um, they're a little bit more hardened to shelling, for example. I mean, there would be heavy shelling in a town like I visited last week, Avdivka, and you'd still see people out just like walking with their groceries and they're not ducking for cover or sort of frantically looking around because it's become part of the fabric of daily life there. You know, at the same time, what you're seeing now that is, is even more difficult to contend with is that these towns don't have running water. They don't have heating. Many of them don't have electricity. Um, they don't have, for example, in Avdivka, the hospital is still open, but the doctors are all gone. There's like one or two attendees there. So obviously these are not places where people can really live anymore. Um, and so if it does continue on, and my God, I really hope it doesn't for, for years on end, you're basically going to have large swaths of the country that are unpopulated and just battle zones. So, so how could this end, you know, in, in traditional conflict resolution, each side needs to feel like they took something away. In particular, we mm. need Putin to understand that he, you know, like accomplished something here even if it wasn't his initial goals, he can certainly spin it to his goals. You know, what, what's your sense now of how, you know, Vladimir Putin and the Russians could save face here and say, we've accomplished our, our mission? Yeah, it's a really tough one. I mean, the irony of all of this is like the things that they were fighting about in the beginning, <laughs> NATO membership. Everybody knew Ukraine was not going to be able to join NATO anytime in the near future. The issue of Donbass, everybody understood that the Donbass region was going to continue to be in the control of separatists. Crimea, everybody understood that Crimea had been annexed by Russia and that was not going to be undone. So in many ways, the fighting for Russia made even less sense because the issues that it seemed to take umbrage with were already sort of fait accompli, if you will. Now, at the same time, it's this kind of push-pull between, on the one hand, do you make a concession that gives Putin an off-ramp so that he can call it a victory and you can bring about a quicker end or resolution to the war? Well, you know, on paper, that sounds really smart. But in principle, you also have the issue of how do you let someone get away with these war crimes? How do you let someone you know, ha have their army illegally invade a country 
execute people in cold blood with arms tied behind their backs, soldiers raping innocent women, bombs falling on civilian targets. How do you let all that transpire and, and, and forgive it in a sense and, and still make a concession that brings about uh, an end to the war? It becomes very difficult, especially for a president to sell that to the public. Hey guys, you've been through all this, you've suffered this much, you've had all this heartache and horror, and now I'm gonna capitulate in some way to the Russians to bring about an end to the war. And so he's in a position of like constantly walking that tightrope between being a president and trying to do what's best for your country, but also being a human being and a father and a son and a brother who can relate to his people on a very human level and understand emotionally um, where they are right now and what they need and, and what they will accept. So I, I think that this is always the problem with war. The longer it drags on, the more atrocities are committed, the harder it becomes to talk about not even forgiveness, but to talk about the cessation of hostilities even because there's so much anger, there's so much rage, there's been so much bloodshed. It's very difficult to turn the temperature down. Yeah, I was gonna ask, you've covered a number of these and you know, it, it's, it's interesting you note that the longer this goes on, you know, unfortunately the harder it is to resolve even though the damage and the atrocities, the, all of it um, continue to pile up. You know, does this, does this conflict, this war so far remind you of, of any others you've covered or in what ways is it, is it different um, than what you, you know, saw take place uh, various places in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, et cetera? I mean, there are certain like truisms of, of every conflict you cover and, you know, the, the civilians bear the brunt of, of conflict always. And I have seen this over and over again. Every conflict is tragic and heartbreaking and usually sort of senseless on some level. Um, but they're also very difficult to compare because they're so different. I mean, Syria was a sort of uprising of people wanting to overthrow an oppressive dictatorship and embrace a more uh, democratic future, which then morphed into a very ugly and complex civil war. This Ukraine, for example, is an invasion by another country um, in Europe. And so it's, it's a totally different dynamic on almost every level. And uh, I can't think of any conflict I've covered that's that similar to it, except for in 2008, I was there when Russian forces, or I went in to Georgia after Russian forces launched an incursion there. But again, that lasted eight days. It was not a full-scale invasion. Uh, and so the scale of it can't be compared. This, this is the largest ground invasion in Europe since the Second World War. Um, so it is, it, is, it, is, it is huge in every sense of the word. But as I mentioned before, it's just so hard to compare conflicts because they're all so different, but they're all equally tragic and heartbreaking. What, um, I, I want to get the, you know, the, the, 
the truth that you just discussed, which is the impact on civilians. Um, I was struck by the story of the 86-year-old woman, Lydia, um, who was yeah. trapped. And then, to, and then viewers watched your story and you were then able to document um, you know, her being brought to a safer place. Can you tell me about uh, finding that story? Um, mm. And then take us through that process, because that's where I think um, you know, journalism is so important. The town of Avdivka is no stranger to war. For eight years, this has been the front line of Ukraine's battle with Russian-backed separatists. People here are used to shelling, but they have never experienced anything like this. A missile can be heard overhead as an emotional man approaches us. They smashed the old part of town, he says. As we talk, the artillery intensifies. The? The? I told him it's better to go home now because there's a lot of shelling, and he said there's more shelling where he lives. As Russia prepares a major offensive in the east, frontline towns like Avdivka are getting pummeled. So you can hear constant bombardment. This is the bomb shelter down here, but you can see this building has already been hit. More than 40 people are now living in what used to be a clothing store. Lida and her two sons have been here for three weeks. She wants to leave, but says her boys are too scared to go outside. We're afraid to stay and afraid to go, she tells us. But it's fate, whether you run or don't run. On an apartment block, an icon of the Virgin Mary has been painted. A plea for protection, but there is no respite in the bombardment. If you look over here, you can see the remnants of some fresh strikes. 37-year-old government worker Rotislav looks at what remains of his family home. He takes us inside to see the full scale of the destruction. It's completely destroyed. Mercifully, no one was at home at the time of the strike. It was photo albums. My children's photography. His family has already left, but he says he plans to stay. I'm afraid like anybody else. Only the dead aren't afraid, he tells us. But a lot of people are still here in Avdivka, living in bomb shelters, and we need to support them. Authorities say roughly 2,000 people remain in this town. There is no water, no heat, electricity is spotty. The local school has become a hub to gather aid and distribute it to the community. Volunteer Igor Golotov spends his days visiting the elderly and disabled. Today, he is checking in on 86-year-old Lydia. 
Petrified and alone, he has yet to find an organization willing to come and evacuate her. When there's no electricity and it's so dark and there's shelling, she says, you can't imagine how scary it is. She tells us she recites prayers to get through the night. I never imagined that my end would be like this, she says. You can't even die here because there's no one to provide a burial ceremony. For Igor, it is agony not to be able to do more. I promise you, he says, I will help you to be evacuated. As we leave, Lydia is reluctant to say goodbye. It is terrifying to live through this time. To do it alone is torture. It's so nice to see real people, she says. Probably it's going to get worse. A prediction all but certain to come true as a second Russian offensive draws near. So we basically had wanted to go around with volunteers in this town of Avdivka that was coming under heavy bombardment to see them try to help evacuate people. And we met up with this volunteer, Igor, who was dealing specifically with people who had disabilities and the elderly. And so he took us to Lydia's home. You know, and the minute you walked into that apartment, your heart broke. The windows had been blown out. Um, from explosions nearby. She's in a wheelchair. She's all alone. Um, she immediately started crying um, with gratitude that Igor had come to see her. She was so lonely and frightened, but also with desperation to try to get out. She desperately wanted to be evacuated. She wanted to be in some kind of a hospital type facility or some kind of a nursing home where they could properly care for her. Her son is in Russia, in Crimea, actually. He was in Russia, now he's in Crimea. So he had called this volunteer service and said, please, can you help my mother? But obviously he had no way of, of, of being able to help her because he's sort of on the other side of the front line, as it were. And I have to tell you, you know, as we were leaving, she, she sort of wouldn't let go of me honestly. Um, she kept hugging me and she was like holding my hand next to her face and saying, thank you so much. It's been so nice to see a real person. And all of us, when we walked out of the apartment, were kind of choked up because it was like, how can we leave her here? Um, and we thought about it in that moment. Like, can we take her? It, it's like not possible. She's in a wheelchair. It was getting late. We didn't have the proper like vehicle that would be able to transport her. And then we thought about it when we got back. And then as the peace went out, of course, there was just like this deluge. I mean, I haven't had a response like that to one individual story in, in, in quite some time with people just like, how can we help this woman? How can we get her out of there? And so we worked with Igor um, and found a, a nursing home for her here in Dnipro. And the next day, um, volunteers managed to evacuate her. And we went to see her and settle her into her new temporary home. And actually, I went to see her again today to make sure that she's, you know, getting good care. And she had been like, she obviously had some kind of a bath and they had given her clean clothes and they 
I was there when they brought her her lunch. And, and so she's really getting very good care now, which is, um, which is wonderful to see. But at the same time, I think, you know, it's beautiful to be able to help one person and to have one person's story resonate with so many that they're able to get to a safer place. But the story of Lydia is the story of thousands and thousands of people um, who are alone, who are poor, who are elderly or infirmed, who are trapped in their homes. And, and we've seen this in a lot of the places that we've visited. A lot of people are dying in their homes, not even because of the bombardment, but because they have no food, they have no water, they have no heat, they have no one taking care of them. They have no way to access basic medical care. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's still very much ongoing. Are any organizations, international organizations uh, related to the UN or anybody else able to operate right now in Ukraine to help these, or is, are people effectively trapped while there's still active um, war happening? Yeah, I think there are like quite a few organizations that are trying to help people. But the scale of the need is pretty huge and it's very difficult to get into these areas because it's so dangerous and there's so much shelling. And then the other challenge is trying to find places to, to take all these people. Um, a lot of people in the East are not evacuating because they have nowhere to go. And um, that becomes really complicated for government, you know, regional authorities who already had their hands full with a huge amount of casualties, with, you know, intense amounts of warfare, with demining efforts. I mean, they have a lot going on at the moment. And to try to find appropriate care for thousands of elderly people, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a tall order right now. Nearly 90, 85 to 90% of the population remains in the country. Mm. Um, what are the reasons they tell you either uh, out of necessity or by choice that uh, they, they remain in Ukraine? So first of all, men are basically not really allowed to leave um, or certainly between the ages of like 18 and 58, I believe. And then elderly people, interestingly, and this I have found in many conflicts I've covered, they don't want to leave. They have a, often have a sort of different outlook. It's my country, it's my house. I am too old to like move to a new place in a new country and live in a gymnasium with 400 other people. And like, I'd rather be at home and die in dignity in my home. Um, and, and, and I've definitely seen a lot of that here. The other thing is that people are really afraid of leaving their homes that they won't be able to go back, not just in terms of bombardment, but in terms of the sort of looting that we've seen. We went into this uh, city called Chernigiv, which is uh, um, a few hours north of Kiev. It was under siege by Russian forces and all these villages around it were occupied by Russian forces for like five weeks. You go to these villages, it's insane. I mean, they literally ransacked every single house. They stole everything of value from microwaves to plasma TVs to, I mean, to like jewelry. And so people in other parts of the country see what happened and, and, and they're proud of their homes and they worked hard to build them and, and make them beautiful. And they're full of memories. And, and, 
so often you'll have a situation like a story we did today with this couple where Olga was getting on a bus to leave the city Slavyansk in the east and Pavel was staying. And when I asked Pavel, you know, why are you staying? He's not staying to fight. He's staying to protect their home and to make sure that they still have a home to go back to when the war is over. There's a huge amount of pride among Ukrainians. More media question for you. One is related to, and I'm sure you've gotten these questions, why is Ukraine getting so much coverage than some of the other conflicts that we've seen over the course of the past few years and would love your perspective on that. And secondarily, how do you um, go about telling the story to ensure the audience doesn't remain, doesn't become numb to it, that it remains mm -hmm. relevant mm -hmm. and compelling to the audience? I know there's two questions in there, but. So on the first one, I would say, look, I spent like years of my life covering Syria, um, covering the Syrian refugee crisis, covering Iraq, um, covering Afghanistan. And, and, and there were huge amounts of interest in those stories at certain points, definitely. I mean, wall-to-wall -wall coverage and, you know, endless rotations. So I, I think those stories did get a lot of attention. The problem, that, and this happens with every conflict, and I think it's going to happen with Ukraine too, is that the public starts to reach a saturation point whereby they become used to the idea that there is this horrifying conflict playing out in a place and they are, it's much harder to kind of cut through and, and, and touch them and, and make them feel affected. Um, and I mean that like emotionally and sort of literally by the story that is happening. So, I, I mean, there's obviously a sense as well when you're talking about the biggest ground invasion in Europe since the Second World War. But, and because no one believed it would happen, I think that's important to remember as well, even as U.S. intelligence officials were saying this invasion is imminent. Ukrainians and most people on the ground and, and people in Europe were saying, is this possible? I can't see. There's no way. There's journalists on the ground. There's no way Putin's going to invade. Why would he do that? There's no sense in it. I can't see an upside. What's the victory for him? How does this play out in a way that possibly works in Russia's favor? And so because there was such high skepticism, when that invasion happened, the shock level and the disbelief was off the charts, like no one, no one could believe it was actually happening. So I think that that accounts for, um, for a huge part of, of why there has been such enormous interest in the story. But I think that while it is still on every front page, there is a difference coming back this time. People are getting used to the idea that there is a conflict that is grinding on in Ukraine that may continue to grind on for quite some time. And it does become more challenging to, um, to really cut through and, and grab people's attention and, and make them feel connected to the story and make them continue to view it as important. In my experience though, the way you do that is by finding great characters who tell the story for you through their own experiences and their own perspectives and their own stories. And that kind of storytelling can take a little bit longer to put together. It's not the same sort of frenetic pace of like every day I am constantly having to like knock out a piece. 
but it, um, yeah, so it's, it's sort of more challenging and more time consuming, but I, I think that it's also, it, it's what you need to do in, in, in these moments as people become kind of more inured to any given conflict to make sure that they stay focused and, and, and stay connected to it. You were telling the story of Lydia and, you know, the, the discussion you were having as a news crew of like, how do we save her? And I, I, it got me to the question of how you separate your emotions, how you compartmentalize what you're seeing mm. and, and generally speaking, your, your mental health. Clarissa, I know you were here, uh, you were in Ukraine mm. in the lead up to the war, the beginning of the war. Uh, I understand you, you did leave for a bit, you came back, right? Mm. Um, is that something that's important for you to be able to find that balance? How, how do you um, cope on a daily basis with the, with the experiences, with the interviews, with, with what you're witnessing? I mean, I think when you're in the field, you do have to compartmentalize a bit because um, there's so much going on around you in terms of the job that needs to be done, the security risks that need to be assessed, that you really need to be laser focused on, on trying to get done what you need to do in as safe a way as possible. If you really allowed yourself to like feel all the feelings in the field, um, you, you would probably struggle um, because it is a lot. It's a lot of trauma that you're taking on board, not your trauma, but other people's trauma. And, uh, you know, for me, what's important is that you don't try to become desensitized. You don't try to be callous. Um, you allow yourself to take it on board. And then when you have that time and space where it's sort of safe and comfortable to do so, you sit with it, you unpack it, you let yourself grieve. Um, nothing in my experience with this sort of stuff works in a linear way, which makes it kind of complicated to know, am I just in a bad mood or is this a reaction to that? Or, um, But what I have learned over the years is that the only way to even try to get your arms around all of it is to make sure that you're vigilant about self-care and that you're self-aware and having the conversation with yourself along the way. And then also being vigilant about carving out that space at the end of an assignment to, to make sure that you, that you try to process it because it, the temptation is always to sweep it under the rug and not deal with it. Um, and, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know that like it will catch up with you and you can't get away with that forever. So, but it's a tough balance to strike in the field between being professional and not letting yourself go there and compartmentalizing. But also for me, it's exceptionally important to be fully present in interviews and fully open to other people's pain. Because I know for, for whoever it is that you're talking to your interview subject, even if it's not in front of the camera, even if it's just a conversation, when you're experiencing this kind of horror, to be heard is so important, to be listened to and to sort of be able to have your, your story on the record somehow, that, that, that does mean a lot to, to people. And I, and I think that sometimes it can be helpful as well in terms of 
trying to process what they've gone through. Um, so yeah, you don't want to be totally hardened at all, but you also have to have boundaries or you, or you won't really be able to do it. And I want to get just uh, finally here to your safety. Um, unfortunately we've, you know, um, seen, um, we've lost a few journalists, um, in, mm. in this war. Um, and there's, you know, there's a unique nature of work is in some conflicts, you know, the adversaries are very clear about trying to avoid the media at all costs. Um, how are you approaching staying safe and your reporting? Well, I would say that my team as a whole were extremely cautious. Um, we take risks really seriously. I don't think any of us find danger ex exciting. Um, I think that's sort of a stereotype or a cliche that exists about people who do this job that somehow the adrenaline is thrilling. And um, I don't think that's the case. It's certainly not the case for us. You so get scared we're, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, very scared in, in, in a scary situation. Yes, and fear is there for a good reason. Fear is there to inform you that you're in danger and you need to do what you need to do and then get out. The, the sort of trick that I've learned over the years is not to try to not be afraid because that's sort of a fool's errand, but to learn how to control the fear and to learn how to make sure that the rational mind is still in control because fear very quickly leads to panic and panic is the enemy in, in any kind of a conflict situation. Panic is what leads to often people getting hurt. So you try to stay calm, you try to stay focused and you most importantly work really hard in anticipation of any kind of move for a story to plot out all the possible contingencies plot out what's your exit route, where are you going in, what's the intel on that area at the moment, what are local authorities in that area who you're in touch with. Like, you can't just sort of feel your way into this stuff or stumble your way into it. Like, you really do need to do a lot of planning. And often your plan will completely change along the way. That's sort of part of the course during this work. But by doing the planning in the first place, it just means that you are thinking in a much more like dynamic and contextualized way about where the potential risks are and, and what the potential exits are. So I can, you know, security for us is the most important thing and you can't totally mitigate the risk or make it disappear. And we have lost some, wonderful journalists in this conflict and some very experienced uh, journalists like my old friend Pierre Zegchevsky. Um, so there is an element as well of randomness um, to all of this that you can be the, the best of planners and the most secure and, 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 and still get really unlucky. But um, I think all of us who've been doing this for a long time really take the risk element very seriously and, and work very hard to try to be as smart and as careful as we possibly can. Have you, this question, by the way, that came from my wife, who was like, has she witnessed, has Clarissa witnessed uh, Russian soldiers, Russians and Ukrainians interacting in a peaceful manner despite the war happening? Uh, have, you, have you seen any, I mean, these are, two neighbors, they have so many cultural similarities, they have so much um, shared common everything, mm -hmm. culture, history, language, etc. Um, have you, I mean, 
given what you've seen so far, whether it was post-conflict, et cetera, kind of witnessed um, uh, signs well, of, of pre-war Ukraine, yeah, Ukraine no. Russia, yeah. No, um, and, and this is like another thing that people forget, and it's an important thing that you point out. Like, I know tons of Ukrainians who are married to Russians and Russians who are married to Ukrainians and Russians who live in Ukraine and Ukrainians who live in Russia. And I mean, so many people I've interviewed, it's like, like Lydia, my son lives in Russia. Uh, another woman I interviewed was like, we were getting ready to move to Russia. Um, these are two countries that like culturally, linguistically, historically, religiously are deeply, deeply intertwined and, and, and have been for, for many, many years. But I don't know how, how that can continue now or, or what that will look like now. And, and this is a sort of, it's an offshoot of the main story, but I do wonder what happens to these families where, you know, they're part Ukrainian, part Russian, you hear stories of women in Ukraine, or, you know, family members are being killed and they call a relative from Russia and they're like, well, that's a lie. It's a denazification project. You know, I mean, what will this do to these families? Like families and friendships are being torn apart by this. Um, and I, and I think it'll be a long time before we could imagine some return to normalcy, even on that just civilian level of ordinary friendships and relationships. Clarissa, thank you. Uh, thank you for your incredible work. We're all grateful for it. And most importantly, please stay safe. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat. She is such a remarkable storyteller. I want to thank Clarissa Ward for joining me, uh, especially from the front lines in Ukraine. You can catch all her coverage on CNN or over at CNN.com. She's also the author of the book On All Fronts. It takes you inside her experience as a war correspondent. Again, On All Fronts is her autobiography. I want your feedback on this podcast. Please email me your thoughts, podcast at mo.news. Also a reminder to subscribe to my newsletter, the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to this show on whatever app you're listening to us on right now so you don't miss a single episode. And please review us in the App Store. Uh, every review makes a difference and helps us continue to grow the podcast. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.